just like to begin by saying that it feels really great to be back in this hall. I teach here eight months of the year, and I've just been away for a few months. And coming back in here is like coming back home. Um, and also just to say that during the last month of this time off that I've had, I had the good fortune of spending time with two of my own teachers. And one is Minjur Rinpoche, he's uh, a Tibetan monk, and the other is Sayadaw Utejaniya, who is a Burmese uh, monk. And so two teachers from two different lineages, both very, very helpful to me. And so, you know, today, in trying to think about what to talk about tonight, I was just looking to see what has, what has been um, there for me during this time. What, what has, what, in what way have I been tasting of the Dhamma through them? And I felt like one aspect, and you know, it's certainly there's many layers that get touched, but one aspect that was shining through was just a sense of possibility. You know, what is possible in this journey of awakening? And being in the presence of these two teachers was sort of like what can sometimes seem impossible felt so possible. You know, that, that one can really awaken in this lifetime. And that the taste of that the, the scent of that was so strong around these two teachers that it both strengthened in my own mind a sense of aspiration, a sense of possibility, and it helped to give me the courage to face that which seems impossible or that which is, feels like a challenge, the places where I get caught, contorted, um, helped helping to give me the courage to just really look there. And so tonight what I wanted to speak about is this quality of aspiration, this sense of possibility that I'm sure we all have or we wouldn't be here. And I was really happy to see one of my teachers struggle with just the same problem. <laughs> and every time he moved, it got amplified. <laughs> uh, so one of the challenges. Anyhow. Mm. So this sense of possibility, we wouldn't be here without it. The sense of possibility happens for each of us in different ways in our lives. I think many of us, and maybe not all of us, as a child, tapped into some sense of possibility. Hopefully this will work. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I remember as a child 
you know, seeing suffering in the world around me. And it was really disheartening. It was painful to see, not hearing it being talked about. And yet, at times, being alone in nature, and nature was for me what I considered to be my first teacher, times where even, you know, if I'd gone into nature feeling quite tormented, sitting there, feeling something of this sense of possibility through feeling held by nature, through feeling a part of life, and not the sense of standing separate and isolated from life. I remember even feeling the sense of possibility as I witnessed suffering in nature. That there was just something in me that felt like there was some possibility of stepping out of alienation, being a part of all things, being able to live in a way that was wise, that was caring, that was inclusive. And then, of course, these moments would pass, and I might once again be caught, lost in confusion. There's actually a um, Moody Blues song that I really loved as a teenager. And to this day, when I hear it, I burst into tears. <laughs> and in it is the line, um, and I know one day I'm going to find my own peace of mind, or something that might have a few little mys in the wrong place, but you know, something that points towards possibility. Actually, just the other day, my husband, I can't remember for what reason, put on this song, and then he got this glimmer in his eye. It was as if he was playing it to see me cry. But, you know, it was as a teenager, having something that pointed towards this sense of possibility. In speaking about aspirations, I think that there needs to be clarification around it because it can be held in unskillful ways. And it is something that at times can seem contradictory to us. We are, through our practice, training over and over again to be in the moment, to be present in the moment. And when we hear of the word aspiration, which can be equated with goal, uh, it can seem contradictory. And sometimes people think it just has no place in the teachings. And yet the Buddha taught the Noble Eightfold Path, this being the journey of awakening. And that the, the realization of the cessation of suffering being the goal. Through our practice, we have to learn how to hold this aspiration in a way that is skillful, helpful, inspiring, but doesn't lead us into a tailspin of striving, wanting, craving. That it's not like holding a carrot in front of our nose and saying, 
I will become enlightened. I will reach the goal. And, you know, that's not going to be helpful. It's going to set up more craving. So we have to find the way that we can taste of this possibility. We can know of it in a way that directs our practice back to this moment, which holds within it, is pregnant with the possibility of awakening. And this is regardless of what our experience is. I'll speak more about this as I go on, hopefully. I'll remember. But often in our culture, we may have many goals that are not in accordance with the deepest aspirations of hearts and mind, which is really what I'm speaking about tonight. You know, sometimes just through our upbringing, uh, we may get motivated, say, through our career, what we're going to do, what we're going to become in life. And this can get instilled from being a small child. You know, how many times were you asked, what are you going to become when you grow up? And, you know, this sense of having to be somebody, something. And sometimes these goals aren't directed by wisdom. That, you know, we may have people who want us to be certain things in life. And out of a sense of wanting approval, wanting recognition, we go for that. And it becomes something that we're grasping at, wanting desperately. And this is where real suffering comes in. But our Dhamma aspirations can be held in a very different way. It can be through looking to see what it is that motivates us, what it is that inspires us to be here, to do this work, and where this has come from. You know, for many of us, it is the voice of compassion. We've heard suffering. We've heard the cries in our own mind. We've heard the cries in the world around us. And out of this sense of possibility, out of a sense of how we might move out of confusion, we come, we sit here, we look into the workings of our hearts and mind. Our aspirations come from a depth within us. I often think of this, uh, you know, this noble aspiration of heart and mind, however we may voice it, and for each of us it may be very different how we express it. But when we look at why it is that we practice, you know, it may be that we voice it as, I just want to be happy. But, you know, we know it's not the happiness that comes from getting what we want. Because we've seen over and over in our lives how fleeting that happiness is. We might have a sense that true happiness comes from being able to live in alignment with the way of things. 
Some of us might say, it's to be peaceful. I just want some peace in my life. And that peace, too, comes through understanding, where we're not fighting, where we're not feeling tossed about by the waves of life. His Holiness the Dalai Lama once said, my religion is kindness. But we also probably know that true kindness is not just being nice to somebody. True kindness needs wisdom. And so we look and we see. We look deeply into our experience to have this understanding, to be able to embody this understanding, to be able to call forth our greatest potential. Our aspirations are to help us not to move into becoming, but to help dispel the conceptual ways we get caught, to help us move into the mystery, to move into the infinite, the infinite sense of possibility that there is, where we aren't locked within a self-view. And my sense of this is that as we practice, we begin to listen, and we get in touch with this desire to be happy. And when this desire to be happy is supported by clear seeing, it becomes like a homing instinct. And we learn to follow that. And this homing instinct, I think, can really take root in doing practice at a place like the Forced Refuge. Because many of you have received a lot of instruction in your life about practice, how to meditate. And sometimes we get so used to listening to that external voice of instruction that we cease to listen to the internal voice of wisdom that we have. And, you know, if we've done some practice, it's like there's been some clearing away. And if we can really relax, listen, we find that homing instinct coming forth. I once had a dog named Sasha. She was a very beautiful husky. And I learned through having her that huskies are quite wild in their instincts. That, um, you know, she actually, I believe in the end, was shot because she got into killing and killing chickens and neighbors didn't approve. So in the end, her wildness um, probably brought her to her death. But I also had one lesson from her that was just quite amazing to me, where I went to the city that my parents lived in, which is Calgary in Canada. Uh, Right now it's just under a million people. Then it probably wasn't as big. But it was several miles from one side of the city to the other. And my parents lived on one side of the city, and my sister lived on the other. One day I drove through the city with my dog Sasha in the back seat. She was laying down as we were driving. 
we got to my sister's place, and my sister had two dogs, and they were a bit aggressive and territorial. And I, you know, I noticed that they were kind of uh, a little bit of friskiness when we arrived, but I didn't think too much of it. I left Sasha outside with the other dogs, went inside, spent some time with my sister, went outside, and Sasha was nowhere to be seen. And so, you know, I spent time combing the neighborhood, um, didn't find her anywhere, and then finally just had to go back to my parents' place. Um, over the next few days, I did, you know, further looking for her. I placed an ad in the paper, and there was just no sign of her. And then came the day that I was going to leave. And it was really kind of the letting go of finding my dog again. And then only about an hour before I was going to leave, there was this scratching at the front door of my parents' place. And when I went to the door, there was Sasha. And she had traveled several miles across the city, which she had only been laying down in the back seat of this car, and found her way back. You know, that, that in her there was this kind of homing instinct. And I really believe that we all have it. And that in getting in touch with our aspirations is really getting in touch with this, what is in its essence a wholesome desire to be happy. And yes, we have sought happiness in misguided ways because of our confusion. But when we listen, when we begin to bring mindfulness to our experience, when we aren't caught up so much in reaction to experience, this sense of possibility comes deeper, comes stronger, becomes more alive for us. And then it becomes a great support because it's very energizing. You know, I found that being around these teachers in this last month, that I found, you know, a lot more energy in myself. I found oh, a deep joy in practice. You know, practice no longer was drudgery, you know, facing the dukkha, facing the suffering. And yet I may still be facing challenges. But there was a joy in it because there was holding it within this bigger container. That this very place where we are stuck, tight, confused, this is where understanding can be, if we can accept it. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it seems so unacceptable. But when we can be holding with a kind aspiration. It will help us to find the courage to be there. And the journey of awakening is not always pretty. It's not always joyful. It has really hard moments because we face what binds us, where we get contracted, where we are so solidly identified and that has to be okay. And our aspiration, just it gives context to why this is so, why it is okay to be with this pain, why we don't have to beat ourselves up 
when we feel stuck. I've also noticed in my own life how aspiration can make me uncomfortable at times. You know, there's times when I personally, I'll speak for myself, have really wanted to just fall into complacency. No, it's hard to be living life on the edge, to be really looking into these dark places. And sometimes, you know, just the sense of, doesn't really matter. It's okay. You know, or times when I might want to move into a false sense of equanimity, where I try to pretend that something's not bothering me. But I've noticed that aspiration, the sense of aspiration, doesn't let me hang out there. It... Um, Sometimes the aspiration can come through in a really raw way, where I remember this uh, from a few years ago, going back to my childhood again, where I was born in a city called Regina in Saskatchewan in Canada. It's in the middle of the prairies. And when I was young, it was the middle of nowhere. And I grew up being grateful to my parents that they had, when I was about four years old, moved away from there. And I was grateful that they had done that. Um, But I used to have to go back and visit. And I saw this city as being the end of the world. And when I was there, I had this sense of possibility shutting down. And there came within me just kind of this explosive energy that wanted to bust out. That because there wasn't wisdom, it blamed people for my discomfort. It blamed events, this place, for the discomfort. And yet there was, really, it was a raw form of this desire to be happy. And it didn't know how to express itself skillfully. And so at times it was unskillful. And yet it kept me looking. You know, in going back years later, I could see there's nothing wrong with the place. In fact, I could see the beauty of it. And there's wonderful people there. But there was something in that raw energy that just had to bust out. And then, so we might at times experience our aspiration in that way, and especially where we feel constrained. And it can be the sense of something's wrong here, something's wrong, and like your hands are bound, and you know it doesn't have to be that way, and yet you don't know what to do about it. But you do, you move, and sometimes it's not so skillful. But as we practice, we find that the skillful means comes in more and more. It's accompanied by wisdom. It's supported by wisdom.
I'd like to speak just about a little bit about a woman whom has deeply inspired me around this sense of possibility. And this is Deepama. I know many of you have sat at IMS over the years and have probably heard many stories about Deepama, and some of you may not know anything about her. So just to say a little bit, um, she was a little Bengali woman who was a teacher to many of the teachers here, probably some of you. Uh, She came to IMS a few times, and she, to me, was just a bundle of courageous energy. I actually never got to meet her myself. I did have one dream about her once, and the dream was very powerful. Um, I dreamt that I had my head in her lap, and I was sobbing and sobbing. And she was just gently rocking me back and forth and patting my back. I told Sharon Salzberg um, about this dream the night after I had it. And Sharon had known Deepa Ma well. And, you know, after I told her about it, I said, I really wished I'd met Deepa Ma. And she said to me, you just did. You know, Deepa Ma was this woman whom, through her own life, had encountered an enormous amount of suffering. That she had been married uh, when she was 12 years old. Uh, she found, uh, A few years after she got married, she moved from India to Burma with her husband. So she was you know, taken away from the support of her family. And she lived for many years with the stigma of having no children. Um, And that was hard for her. And then finally, many years later, she gave birth to a baby girl. And three months later, uh, the baby died. And she was quite grief-stricken. And then she did give birth to another girl and later to a boy. And then the boy was to die at birth. So she became further grief-stricken. And at that time, she asked her husband if she could go and meditate. And he said no. He wouldn't let her do that. And so she became very sick, and she was unable to leave her bed. And at that point, her husband took care of her and her daughter that was alive. And then one day, suddenly, her husband died. And there she was, very sick, left with a daughter to raise in a country where she didn't have the support of her family. And she just began to sob and sob. She'd hold a photo of her husband in her lap and just cry. And so her health took a further decline. And then one day she had a dream about the Buddha. And he chanted something from the Dhammapada. He chanted, Clinging to what is dear brings sorrow. Clinging to what is dear brings fear. To one who is entirely free from endearment, there is no sorrow or fear. And hearing the Buddha chant this to her, it inspired her to go and to meditate, to practice until she was free from all attachment and sorrow.
And so out of her suffering came the motivation to practice. And she took herself to a monastery in Burma. And it said that at times she was so weak she had to crawl up the steps to the meditation hall. But she began to practice. And she practiced with a strong motivation. And within a very short period of time, she had a degree of realization that shifted her life, where she was no longer unhealthy. Her health came back. She was no longer overwhelmed by her suffering. And through the course of her life, she went on to become a highly realized being, one who remains a great source of inspiration to many of us. What I find so inspiring about her is that, you know, in reading, there's a book, Knee Deep in Grace, that has many stories of uh, her life in it, and stories told by her students, and some about her life. And I just always got the sense from her that she felt like no matter how deep your pain has been in life, freedom is always possible. It's accessible to each and every one of us. Can we hold that as a possibility as we sit here, as we sit with our knee pain, our back pain, as we sit with a mind that goes crazy, that is just chattering away, is judging, is analyzing, is trying to figure out a mind that gets filled with anger, rage, bewilderment, confusion. Can we really let that very moment be filled with the sense of possibility? A possibility that doesn't say it has to be different. A possibility that says, right here, right now, I will know my experience in the only way I can. That I will just do my best. And sometimes our best in the judging mind doesn't look so good. But I will just bring whatever capacity I have in this moment to be with things as they are right now. potential, the possibility. It's not something we will become in the future. It's not needing to perfect something. It's turning the mind towards understanding that is in alignment with the way things are. And from this, 
there is a freedom of the heart that happens. Our aspirations help us to take our seat on this earth, to be fully present in our lives to whatever degree we can in this moment. Because this is where we find the journey of awakening. We find that often our deepest aspirations get covered over by fear and beliefs. We may have beliefs that we're not good enough, that we're not capable. We may have fear of failure. I remember as a child how the fear of failure kept me from doing things because I was afraid that, you know, if I really tried to do something, maybe I couldn't do it. And it stopped me, kept me bound. So we will find, you know, as we get in touch with our deepest aspirations, that it can challenge us, that we will hit upon ideas of limitation. We will hit upon fear. We will hit upon doubt. I don't know if you've had moments in your life, but, you know, moments where in some way you're connecting with a really vital force, some understandings coming, and you're in the moment of expressing something to somebody, and then the thought comes, but who am I to say this? You know, and it's like we go into our little tight sense of self, where in another moment there was just life flowing through us. And so we have to have a sense of compassion when we hit upon these fears, beliefs, and doubts, because they surely will arise. And, you know, with doubt, doubt is the skeptical mind. Doubt likes to step back. You know, it's the reason not to engage fully. You know, oh, you know this practice isn't really right. It's not, it's not the right practice. And so we keep a sense of keeping ourselves safe. And it keeps us from from being engaged. It keeps us from wholeheartedly bringing forth our energy. But with doubt, instead of getting caught in the skepticism, the trying to analyze, keeping protected, we can turn doubt around into inquiry, investigation. Because often with doubt, it moves into the thinking mind where if we can turn that quality of investigation again back into the moment, back into what is the experience here, it brings us back into that flow of life rather than the distancing.
it's important in our life that we discover what the Buddha called right view. That we discover, that we actually learn to turn our minds towards what is truth, what is the way of things. Because if we don't do that, then we will be continuing to turn our mind into habits, patterns that create more suffering. And so our aspirations, if we can consciously bring to mind, and sometimes you know it can only be an intellectual understanding of the way things are, um, that maybe has had resonance, but need, we all need to explore more deeply to keep looking. But if we can be turning our minds towards truth, towards that which is wholesome, that which is helpful, that, because of the law of karma, is what we will reap the fruits of. So, if we can bring into our practice the sense of getting in touch with a sense of possibility, it's a way of turning our minds towards potential, truth, freedom, uh, an understanding of the way things are, and it's giving ourselves direction in life, giving the mind um, a direction in which to move. I found that, like, just in making decisions in my life. If I look, if it's supported by my deepest aspiration to awaken, I can look and see, is what I'm about to do based in greed, hatred, or delusion? Or is it based in an alleviation of suffering? Is it helpful? Is it leading to greater wisdom? So it gives a reference point when I might not be so sure, where there might be confusion. We do have to watch how we can hold aspirations in the way that pulls us into striving, pushing, where we actually uh, confuse expectations with aspirations. And we may have expectations of what our practice should look like, how it should unfold, and then we suffer when it doesn't happen that way. We find um, that aspirations become painful when they're self-referencing. No, when we have the sense that I will become enlightened, I will become awakened, I will become a better person. This is all self-referencing. And there's a line from Suzuki Roshi that I love. Uh, he says, there are no enlightened beings only enlightened moments. That awakening belongs to no one. It is this I, this self, that gets in the way, that is the 
the contraction, the constriction. And that can, we can really watch when, you know, you're practicing, and I've seen it, it's embarrassing, but I've seen it so often in my own practice where just, oh, you know, I'm going to come out of this retreat a much better person. You know, people will really like me. Um, I will be the queen of equanimity. <laughs> There's just some identity with it. And that, you know, the deepest level of aspiration is that of what's called bodhicitta, where uh, we, uh, bodhi is awakened and citta is mind, and we practice to recognize the awakened mind. And there is a level in which the realization of bodhicitta is to see things as they are. And there's also another level where, on the relative level, we are practicing with cause and conditions in the way of bringing into our lives loving-kindness, compassion, um, a deep sense of care and reverence for life, and really wanting to awaken because in that process this is the greatest offering we can give. This is how we can truly respond to the cries of the world. It's a way in which we can make our lives an offering. And for me, it's been really helpful. You know, I first came to practice because of my own suffering. You know, it was really distinctive. But then, through practice and through the scene of interconnectedness, came this understanding that in order to truly benefit others and to allow that wanting to benefit others to inspire my own practice can be really the knowledge that this can be... through my practice, the awakening that can occur can be this great offering. And it really helps to motivate me. It helps me to not fall into complacency. And I think this is one of the big things about aspiration, is it really giving context to our practice, to our lives, to what's of value in our lives. And finding the way to live. It's like, I find it like nudging closer to those aspirations so that my life reflects it. So that there's not that separation you know, it can happen through aspirations that if we don't, if they become an ideal in our mind, it becomes a brutal voice when each time we have a sense of not living up to it. Uh, or it becomes this voice of how we should be. But that isn't the wise way.
But when we can touch into bodhicitta, when we can find some inkling of how our lives can be an offering, this will bring energy into how we practice, that we practice, that we practice in each moment in our lives, that our, li- it's not, our practice is not confined to the cushion, but really looking to how we can live in accordance with what my Zen master call, often called our deepest vow. And that it may, for each of us, be a sense of uncovering that. You know, we might not have such a clear sense of direction. That's okay. That's part of the confusion. But there is something that's brought you here. There is something that's motivating you to sit here. Sometimes, for some of us, it's really a felt sense. We don't know it. You know, awakened, liberated. That can sound too lofty to out there. Find what works for you, what's meaningful. And, you know, I know for a long time for me, it was a felt sense. You know, it was almost like just a, a deep tenderness of heart that didn't have any words. But when, when I noticed when my mind went there, there was a greater strength, greater sense of courageousness of heart to meet the difficulties. I have found it really helpful in my own life when I sit down to a sitting. And, you know, on retreat, it can be every sitting. Some people might just at the beginning of a day just spend a moment reflecting on why it is that you practice. Or if you have an aspiration that you can give language to. You know, I often use um, the aspiration, may I be quickly liberated for the welfare and benefit of all beings. Know that it helps me to remember that I'm sitting here, not for my own benefit, but to help all beings. And this brings that energy. So it's just something that you, if you don't already do, you might try doing at the beginning of a day, the beginning of a sitting, beginning of a walking, beginning of a meal any moment of beginning, and there's so many beginnings. I'd like to close tonight with um, a teaching from uh, the Tibetan lineage, from Shantideva, and this is called the Seven Branch Prayer. And to me, it just expresses something of what the immensity of aspiration can be. And, you know, I've heard in the Tibetan world, it's like, don't be miserly with your aspirations. Really, to be able to open up to the infinite. To, you know, the Buddha, the Buddha mind, the awakened mind, is vast, is limitless, is boundless. And this is what we have the potential to open to. And I I just find it reflected in this prayer, and I find it very inspiring. May I be a guard 
for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road, for those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall, and a lamp for those who long for light, for those who need a resting place, a bed, for all who need a servant, may I be a slave. May I be the wishing jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power and the supreme remedy. May I be the tree of miracles, and for every being, the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus, for every single thing that lives, in numbers like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.